All right. Good evening, everybody. I don't know what it is, because it's not just this service, but this side of the room always fills up first, to where I've always wondered if there's like a weird smell on this side or something. <laughs> could, could be Roger, I don't know. <laughs> All right, hey, we are in, um, guess which book? Isaiah, yeah, we're in Isaiah 33 tonight. We are officially at the halfway point of uh, the book of Isaiah. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've, uh, we've looked at uh, some of the woes that were pronounced on, on Judah, uh, for specifically for going to Egypt for help, right? Remember, they, the, the one of all places for them to turn to for help, they turned to the, thing that, the place they used to be enslaved to. And boy, don't we do that, right? When things are going wrong, we turn to things that we've been delivered from sometimes. Uh, But, uh, you know, so they were trusting Egypt rather than trusting God. And then uh, we also saw Isaiah. He was painting kind of a a general picture of what what it'll look like when when Israel finally has a righteous king, right? When uh, when Jesus reigns here on earth in what we call his uh, millennial kingdom. But the big baddie in this book, the one that, the, that just keeps casting a, a long shadow, is Assyria. And so Assyria is preparing to invade Judah, where, where Isaiah ministers. And just, just as a reminder, who the Assyrians are, or what they were about. Uh, we, sometimes we, we lose sight, because there's all these different, you know, enemy nations listed in the Old Testament. But the Assyrians uh, were really creative when it came to brutality. Uh, they, they loved to torture more than almost any other uh, nation. They would cut off legs and arms and tongues and ears. And testicles was a big thing they liked to cut off for some whatever reason. Uh, they liked to gouge out eyes of their prisoners. Uh, they would burn people's children in front of them. Uh, one of their more creative techniques is they like to partially disembowel someone, and they were so good at it that they could do it in such a way that the person would stay alive, and then they would have to walk with their intestines outside of their body uh, to, to like the next town, you know, as a, a warning to, to them. Um, so I'm, I'm just telling you that so that you understand why they, they cast such a long shadow, why they were such a specter uh, to, to Isaiah and his people. So this, this, just, this wasn't just about par- power or, or territory. Uh, they were just flat-out evil. Um, they were seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. You know? And so that's what Judah is, is facing in the near fulfillment, right? That's, that's what they, they see outside their doors. But remember, Isaiah likes to deal in the dual fulfillment type of prophecy, where there was a near fulfillment, that's what they're facing, but also in the far fulfillment, uh, the Assyrian is often used as a metaphor for uh, the Antichrist or the world system that's to come, you know, that's so something that's still in our future. Uh, so anyway, that's where we're at. Uh, we'll go ahead and pray and we'll get into it, all right? Well, we thank you for 
uh, allowing us to be here tonight uh, to study your word. Uh, we're in a portion of scripture that uh, many, uh, myself included, uh, find to be very difficult. And uh, so we pray that you would just help us understand tonight. Help us see the truth of your word, uh, not get lost in theories and mysteries and just see who you are a little bit clearer through the message you spoke to Isaiah so many years ago. And we pray for your blessing on the message and on the hearts of your people and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so all that stuff I just, you know, we get, went over a little bit of background, but there's one little portion of scripture I want to go to before we get into our, our main text, just to give us um, a little picture of what's happening while Isaiah writes this. So in 2 Kings chapter 18, we see uh, a description of these events uh, that are, gonna, are going to be the focus of the next four or five chapters of Isaiah. And this was such an important thing that it's, it's one of the only events that's listed multiple times in the Old Testament. Three different times this account is given in different books. So it was a big deal. So here we go. 2 Kings chapter 18 is where we're going to be. Uh, verse 13, and I'm just going to read a few verses. You, we could really cover this whole chapter, but uh, verse 13, it says, Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Um, you can look up what that equals out to. It's a lot. It's a lot of money. Verse 15. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. So it was so much money that he had to deplete the national treasury, and then raid the temple, take out all the gold and silver from the temple of God. Verse 16, at that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So basically, he gave every penny he could muster uh, to pay off Assyria. To, you know, for protection or to just please don't hurt us. Here's everything we can give you. And Sennacherib takes the money and then sends some representatives down to Jerusalem. Uh, and they say, you know, thanks for the money, uh, but I think we're going to destroy you anyway. Mainly because you tried to turn Egypt against me. Right? We, we know about your little plan and uh, so don't Paul, you know, and they, if you read on in that chapter, they basically say, don't bother calling on your God because the gods of all the other places we conquered didn't help them. Uh, and besides, we have all the gold and silver from your God's house. How, how powerful could he be? Right, so they just mock God. Uh, and so it's, this is a really low point in, in Judah's history. And so they've tried everything they can think of only to be cheated uh, and betrayed. So, that's our, that's our context. So let's go back to Isaiah 33, verse 1. 
He says, woe to you, O destroyer. While you were not destroyed, and he who was treacherous, while others did not deal treacherously with him, as soon as you finish destroying, you will be destroyed. As soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. So remember, the, the Assyrian is a title that uh, Isaiah kind of throws around. Um, you know, sometimes he's referring to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Sometimes I think he's referring to the Antichrist, to this evil king that's going to come later. And, and he calls him the destroyer. But he says, he says uh, you know, while you were not destroyed, uh, he was treacherous, while others did not deal treacherously with him. He gives all these... Uh, contrasts, and this is really interesting because in Revelation, John picks up this same way of describing the Antichrist, and he says it this way in Revelation 13, verse 10. He says, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance in the faith of the saints. So he basically describes in the same way, you know, all the, uh, those who seek to steal, kill, and destroy are one day going to get theirs, is, is the main idea, right? It's, you uh, live by the sword, you die by the sword, is what Jesus says. This is a, this is a concept that's echoed all through Scripture, but um, just quick reminder, Galatians 6, verse 7 says this, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And what, what I love about that principle is it works not just in the negative, but in the positive, right? You sow good things, and you'll reap. Now doesn't, I'm not talking about karma, right? Like that good, you know, you do good, and good just comes back to you or whatever. But, you know, the interesting thing is when you sow a seed, do you get a single seed back? If I, if I sow a, a, a kernel of corn... Do I get one kernel of corn back? Yes, no, you, hopefully you get ears and ears of corn, bunches of corn, right? So sowing and reaping, it's not a one-for-one one thing, right? It's, uh, uh, it, can, it can pay off huge in the positive or in the negative. In Romans 12, Paul puts it this way, uh, verse 17, he says, Never pay back evil for evil. To anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, this is a passage Pastor Chris covered on Sunday. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we know that we have this system that God put in place that you will reap what you sow. So it's not on you to take your vengeance. Just know that God has a system, right? People who have sown evil, it's gonna, they're going to reap it. It's not your place to take vengeance. And that's a tough one, especially when you think about something that's not fair, right? 
there are lots of things in life that aren't fair. And, and he's just reminding us that you don't need to handle it. Let God handle it. So Isaiah, he, he appeals to the Lord to do just that. Right? He says this destroyer needs to be destroyed. This, this one that deals treacherously needs to you know, be paid back for that. And so, God, we're trusting you to do it. Isaiah 33, verse 2. He says, O Lord, be gracious to us. We've waited for you. Be their strength every morning, our salvation also in the time of distress. At the sound of the tumult, people flee. At the lifting up of yourself, nations disperse. So basically, he says, you know, God, we don't know how you're going to do it. But I know that if you show up, they'll run. I know that if you show up, my enemies are going to quake in front of you. But you notice, he, he just says, I, I'm just, we're just asking you for, for you to show up and then trusting you to do whatever you think should be done. You know, listening to God is, is far more important than giving him your ideas. You know, we, we love to, when we pray, we like to give God suggestions of how he could answer that prayer, right? He's more concerned that you just listen and trust. Because we have this tendency in us, right, to, we compare ourselves to our problems, and our problems are so big, so God, here's how you need to fix this. And God says, no, 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 I want you to compare that problem to me. And look how much bigger than that I am. You don't need to give me ideas. I'm so much bigger, you can just trust me to handle it. Read on here. Verse 4, he says, Your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts rushing about, men rush about on it. So Isaiah, he's tricky, right? He, sometimes he writes in the present tense, and then he'll switch to the future, then back, and and you, it's, it's kind of tough to, to keep his train of thought. But I think he's talking about this destroyer, right? This enemy that, God, we're asking you to deal with him. And he says, you, enemy, uh, your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. And as locusts rushing about, men rush about on it. So when the Assyrian army is dealt with, uh, when they would fall... All their treasure would be cleaned out. There'd be nothing left, right? Well, we've talked, we've referenced this a couple times over the last couple of weeks, and I hate to keep pounding it because eventually in chapter 37, we're going to cover this in detail. But basically, what goes down is Assyria does surround Judah, and then God does show up in a big way. He sends an angel. Uh, who kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night, it says. And one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, in 2 Kings 19, I think verse 35, it says, They woke in the morning, and behold, they were dead. I just love that verse. <laughs> um, we're going to cover that in more detail, but that God does show up. And, and so when all these soldiers are killed all at once, the people of Judah, or, or of Jerusalem, they come out, and they're like the caterpillars or the locusts. They're running around, you know, gathering the spoil from them. Even though we just gave you all of our money, we're getting it back plus some of yours. 
because you left it laying on the ground. Um, so Isaiah, he's praying to God, and, and he, he says, I, I can kind of see how you're going to do it. I'm not quite sure all the details, but I see this vision of, of you know, us gathering up their spoils to, to ourselves. And then his prayer turns to praise. In Isaiah 33, verse 5, it says, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. I love this. You know, he, he doesn't just praise God for what he's done, but for who he is. He's, he just says the Lord is exalted. That's, who, that's what he is. That's who he is. That's one of his attributes. If we get into the mode of we only thank God for what he does, we, we can really quickly lose, lose the train of thought or the, the point of the thing. Because there are times when you're down, it's hard to see how God is moving in your life. Those are tough times. He's still working even, the, even though we don't see it. But if you only ever praise him for, you know, the blessings and the things you've noticed that he's done, when you hit those dry spells, it's, your prayers are going to be a little messed up. No, we're, we're supposed to praise him for who he is and what, you know, what attributes we know that he has. That's why, you know, when Jesus, uh, they asked Jesus, you know, how are we to pray? He says, oh, pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven... Right? That's where he is. Hallowed be your name. His name is holy. Right? He's holy. You know, thank you for being my father. Being a God who I know won't desert me, who loves me unconditionally. Uh, you're holy. You're lifted up uh, on your throne in heaven. Those are, we're reminding ourselves of who God is. Right? Not just, my relationship is not tied to just what you've done for me lately. And I'm not in a big rush to just give, give you my shopping list of here's all the blessings I need you to give me and here's how I want them done. It's I'm coming to you, recognizing you for who you are. I'm going to read verse 6 again. I like how the NIV renders this verse. It says, He will be the sure foundation for your times. A rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure that he has for you. You want all that God has for you. You want to make better decisions. Uh, you, you want to have real wisdom. Uh, you want to feel more secure in troubled times when you're not sure what you're supposed to do, but you want to be able to trust that he's got it. All of that begins with a reverence for him and his word. 
right? My, my relationship with you, God, is not just tied to what you've done for me lately. These aren't just words on a page. You know, the fear of the Lord is it's not being, it's not a terror, right? It's, it's just being aware of how big he really is. And you can't be fully aware of that. Paul says that, you know, that's his greatest wish for us is that we would see just how high and wide and deep and his love is for us. And we can't, we can't fully grasp it. But being aware of his attributes is, is the, the start it's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. Let's go back to Isaiah 33, verse 7. It says, Behold, their brave men cry in the streets. The ambassadors of peace weep bitterly. So they're brave men. These will be their soldiers, right? Our enemy's soldiers. And their ambassadors weep bitterly. Now, Sennacherib, he did send ambassadors to to Jerusalem. They're the ones that said, hey, yeah, thanks for the money, but we're going to kill you anyway. But the Antichrist, in, in the last days, he's going to make peace treaties and covenants uh, with the whole world, and it's all going to fall apart. It's going to hold for a little while, then it's going to fall apart. Verse 8, the highways are desolate. The traveler has ceased. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He has no regard for man. He has broken the covenant. Those of you that are maybe prophecy students, you may recognize some of that language. In Daniel 9, we get a little picture of something like this. In Daniel 9, verse 27 specifically, it says, He will make a firm covenant. Daniel's describing this Powerful, evil leader. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. What's a week? What is, what's that word mean? Seven. Seven something. And on our calendar, a week is seven days. You can have seven bananas, and that's a week of bananas. Um, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, and we believe that that week is the seven years of the tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble or whatever you want to call it, the end times, right? He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. I know that's super confusing, but Jesus refers to this too. He talks about this thing called the abomination of desolation, that there's going to be an evil king who makes peace for a while. And in the middle of a seven-year period, he's going he's to walk into the temple and put an end to the offerings and the sacrifices to God and say, now I'm God, and you're going to worship me. And I'm going to break, you know, all those peace treaties I made mean nothing now. So I believe that's what Isaiah is referring to here. Uh, but anyway, Isaiah 33, verse 9, we're going to read on. It says, The land mourns and pines away. Lebanon is shamed and withers. Sharon is like a desert plain. And Bashan and Carmel lose their foliage. So these are all places that are renowned for their, their uh, beauty and nature. Like Lebanon is known for its great trees. And uh, Sharon is, you know, lush and green and all that. 
And, and in this time, when everything, the wheels fall off, basically, they're, they're going to become desolate. When all the beautiful landscapes are made desolate, when hope is lost, basically. When everything that we used to think was sure and beautiful is now not. When all hope is lost. Verse 10. Now I will arise, says the Lord. He says, now that all hope is lost, now I will arise. Now I will be exalted. Now I will be lifted up. You have conceived chaff. You will give birth to stubble. My breath will consume you like a fire. The peoples will be burned to lime like cut thorns which are burned in the fire. You who are far away, hear what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion, remember that's another name for Jerusalem. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? So you notice... When all hope is lost, he says, now it's time for me. You know, everybody out of the pool, dad's here, right? But he talks about these sinners in Zion, right? In Jerusalem, in my city, there are people that I'm going to have to deal with. You know, sitting uh, in church doesn't make you a believer in Jesus. It doesn't make you a, a Christian any more than... Sitting in a garage, a garage makes you a, a car, you know. You're welcome to, to come and, and listen, uh, but just because someone is in church, that does not mean that they've trusted Jesus. And just because there are people in Jerusalem does not mean that they are people who, you know, are trusting in the, in the Messiah. And there are going to be people who are not prepared at all when he comes. And he, said, he talks about that he's, his word, his voice is going to consume like fire. Hebrews 12, uh, 29 tells us that God is a consuming fire. And normally we don't associate fire with God, right? We think of fire, we think of hell and the devil and that kind of thing. But fire, fire in and of itself, it's not... It's not evil. Uh, fire can be a good thing, right? In the, in the right context, it can warm you or it can destroy you. It can purify or it can consume. Right? When you melt down, I used to work in a, in a mill where we melted a bunch of different metals and we would scrape off the dross, all the stuff that was not pure, all the impurities would get burned off, and we'd get rid of that, and what was left was a pure, uh, either brass or copper, depending on what we were doing. And the fire, it purified those metals, and what we were left with was better than what went in to begin with. God can be a consuming fire in that way. He can get rid of the things in your life that are impure, and, and you're left purified. Or it can just consume you. And so the people, they say, who can survive in, face, in, in light of that, in this consuming fire? Who can survive? Then he tells us. Verse 15. 
He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He, this person who does all those things, he will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty, and they will behold a far distant land. That's beautiful. But don't get it twisted. You're not that guy. And neither am I. When I read this list, you know, how, you, how do you keep your ears and your eyes from evil? How do you, you know, you can seek to be that person. We should aspire to that, that, to holiness. That's what he's describing, right? But we are only holy because of Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that if you've trusted in the work that he's done, that we are hidden in Christ. And because of that, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand, right? He says that they're going to be hidden in the cleft of the rock of, him, uh, uh, of his rock, right? We're going to, uh, because of him, we'll be able to behold his beauty. Because of him, we can look to the far distant land. We can look forward to what's coming. Hebrews 10, verse 10, says that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that's what he wants for all of us. The, in, the, in the face of tribulation and, and consuming fire, that we would cry out, Jesus, I need you and your righteousness to save me. Right? That's what he is calling his people in Israel to do in, in those last few moments. read on here. Isaiah 33, verse 17. It says, Your eyes will see the king in his beauty, and they will behold a far distant land. Your heart will meditate on terror, or old fears, is really how this word reads in the Hebrew. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? So he's describing like the tax man, or the, the head of the treasury, the one who Counts and weighs and measures, right? Where is he who counts the towers? This would be like a, the head of the army or the defense secretary or whatever you want to call it. So there's no need to fear what the world can do to you is what he's saying, right? And if you're, one of, if you're that person, that person who has trusted in Jesus and his righteousness, you, won't, you don't need to worry about the, your old fears or the tax man or... Wars and all of that stuff. Verse 19, you'll no longer see a fierce people, a people of unintelligible speech, which no one comprehends, of a stammering tongue, which no one understands. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an undisturbed habitation, a tent which will not be folded. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its cords be torn apart. So he says, basically, Sennacherib, you won't take God's city. Antichrist, Jesus is going to deal with you. Uh, devil, you can have my body, but not my soul. Right? That 
Those are the rules. Verse 21, but there the majestic one, the Lord, will be for us a place of rivers and wide canals on which no boat with oars will go and on which no mighty ship will pass. In other words, there's no fear of attack from the enemy in that day. Verse 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your tackle hangs slack. It cannot hold the base of its mast firmly, nor spread out the sail. Then the prey of an abundant spoil will be divided. The lame will take the plunder, and no resident will say, I am sick, and the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. So he's describing, of course, the time when uh, Jesus comes back. There will no longer be any sickness. There will no longer be any death. All of that. I know some of the, the language there is cumbersome at best. Uh, many uh, scholars consider this chapter uninterpretable, basically. If you were to read through commentaries, they get to this chapter and go, yeah, I don't know, and then they, they just move on. Um, here's what I think we can get from it. So much of what you're afraid of won't come to pass. And much of what is weighing down your heart will pass. It may seem like it's never going to end, but it will. So don't make it worse by seeking your own vengeance, by repaying evil uh, with evil. Just wait on the Lord. As hard as it is to trust Him, that's what He's calling you to do. And as he said, and as Isaiah described, the more we see the king in his beauty, the more the worries of this world will fade. It's not just about what he's done for me lately. The more clearly we can see him in his beauty, the more we can know him, the more we can know Christ and him crucified, the more... Uh, those things that are weighing you down will lighten. The less that they will uh, bother you. Doesn't mean that we have no troubles. Uh, but just wait on him. Let me pray for you. Well, we thank you for um, giving us the chance to, to study your word. We're sorry if we misinterpret or we get things wrong but lord we know there are simple truths that uh, are here right in the middle of uh, what seems complicated so lord we pray that tonight that you would help us to see to behold your beauty help us to see you more clearly and as we stare into your face lord make our uh, we pray that our the world and its troubles would would fade into the background. That we would make you the priority, seek you first, and trust you 
to take care of the rest. Lord, we thank you for your son, and we pray you come and come quickly. Amen. All right. Ready? Break. <laughs>